Hello and welcome to the Culture Swally, a podcast dedicated to Scottish news and pop culture. My name is Nicky and I'm joined, as always, by the man who I'd love to break into a swimming pool with and have a little midnight swim. <laughs> it's Greg. How are you today, Greg? Very good. I'm very good. I've been um, I've been helping, I think I mentioned in the podcast, ad nauseum how my daughter is in a band. So yeah. I've been helping her and her uh, get they're doing a couple of songs at school in a couple of weeks, and they've chosen "Buddy Holly" by Weezer, good song. And, oh, nice! Um, this one took me totally by surprise, but uh, she sells "Sanctuary" by the Cult. Um, wow! Yeah. Okay. I've been helping her a bit with that. Um, generally, just living vicariously through my fourteen-year-old daughter, projecting my own dreams onto her, <laughs> pretty much. I saw a random clip on Twitter the other day, and I have a very vague memory of this show, but there was a show on kids' TV in, I think the clip was from 1989, or maybe the early 90s, and it was presented by Craig Charles, Right. and it was a music show for kids, Right. and it was on like 4.45, but the clip um, that they showed, uh, they had Napalm Death on as the guests, which <laughs> I was like... I don't remember this, but I, I do have some sort of vague memory in my head of it. But yeah, what a, a strange band to have on a, a kids TV show <laughs> in the I mean, that's, early 90s. I mean, I have to recommend them to my daughter because despite the two songs that I mentioned that they're going to play, they sh- she prefers bands like Slipknot. I told her about Pantera. Um, so a, ah. I've heard some of their songs rumbling out of her bedroom. <laughs> you know, out of the door shut. Um, yeah, so she likes that sort of. I don't know. What, I, don't, I don't know what you'd call it. Death metal, thrash metal. Yeah, I mean, it, it depends. That was kind of my wheelhouse when I was younger as well. Yeah. I was into like Pantera, Sepultura, yeah, uh, Bio, Biohazard, um, and then uh, White Zombie. Yeah. Uh, White Zombie are a bit more industrial, but they were. Yeah. fucking fantastic. Still listen to them occasionally. <laughs> it is so good. Yeah, I have to say, I, I did uh, stick on Pantera recently as well. It was uh, took uh, took me back with uh, some of their lovely uplifting tunes. I got the ultimate endorsement um, last week. We were, we were driving at school and we had the radio on just the, the Dubai. 92, one of the local radio stations here, and they were playing Rock DJ by Robbie Williams. And about, half, yeah. about halfway through, Macy said, Dad, can we not just put your music on? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yes, we can. We definitely can. <laughs> Turn this shite off. <laughs> and as you put it on put it on shuffle and then Robbie Williams comes on. <laughs> I don't have, I don't have any Robbie Williams. I was I was worrying in case like an Elton John song because I've got a few Elton John songs in my playlists. I, I, I like some of his stuff. Yeah, so she's uh, very much off in their own direction. Cause I, oh, fantastic. That's good. I, I was never really into bands like the ones you mentioned. You know what I mean? I was just, mm. I was more sort of into like kind of Seattle scene and and alternatively also bands like Guns N' Roses and Metallica mm. and things so so yeah that's what I've been doing just basically Very good. projecting my own dreams and desires onto my 14 year old daughter ah <laughs> oh, that's what all parents yeah, do isn't it yeah. Hunter's <laughs> a pressure <laughs> Oh, fantastic. Oh, very good. Oh, well, I'm glad to hear that. I'll look forward to uh, to hearing how the, the concert went. That's a cracking tune, though, Buddy Holly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a, a cracking album as well. I do it's, like yeah, that. It's a great album. Very good. Yeah. Oh, well. Okay, then. Shall we have a look at what's been going on in Scotland this last week? Let's do it. Cue the jingle. <laughs> This is the Outer Hebrides Broadcasting Corporation, and here is what's been going on 
in the news. Okay, Greg, what have you seen this week in the newspapers from back home that you've thought, ah, I can't wait to discuss that with Nikki and our listeners. Well, I kind of, b- before the pandemic, I did a lot of traveling around the Middle East for work. I was on a plane, I was on a plane every other week. So I've, uh, I-, I would like to think that I'm a good person to travel with, whether you're traveling with me and as a companion or whether you just happen to be sitting next to me. I'm always well organized. I'm very, a very sort of, um, what's something for, sort of courteous. You know, I'll, I'll help you get your bag down if you're a wee woman and you can't reach. If you're sitting in the middle, I'll always make sure that the armrest that you share with me is free for you. You know what I mean? I'm a, I'm a good traveler. So when I read, oh. when, when I read this um, story, it just fucking made my made my blood boil because I've been in this situation myself a number of times. So the headline is from the Scottish Sun on the 28th of April. It says, Space Invader. I had a window seat on Ryanair, but rude woman kept leaning over me. I was shocked. This is Daniel McLean. She was travelling from Edinburgh to Gdansk on Tuesday when a fellow passenger leaned over her for the duration of the journey. <laughs> it's a... She's put like a TikTok video up with the caption, when you want a window seat and you don't want to pay, and it's the lady sitting next to her who's seems to be filming out of the window right. with her phone. She said she was shocked when the stranger reached over her to film using her mobile phone without speaking to her first. The frequent fly- oh, wow. The frequent flyer said, I just thought it was quite funny at first. The woman in the middle seat just started leaning over me with her arm right across me, taking videos out of the window. She kept doing it during the flight. She didn't even ask if I was okay with it. Danielle's flight cost her £26, but her encounter with the inconsiderate passenger left her in shock. She posted her experience to TikTok with the caption, The person on the plane kept leaning over me videoing and didn't speak or ask if it was okay to lean over me. She added, I was just in shock, so I thought I'd take a picture and post it on social media. I was on my own anyway, just sitting at the window seat, so I didn't have anyone with me, but I thought, I have to take a photo. We recently told how a plus-size traveller revealed what it was like to travel, and he said it was the airline's fault for being so small. Yeah, that's a woman from Shropshire. I'm not sure that I agree with that (laughs) statement. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I I can say I do a lot of travelling. I tend to find that the majority of people that you travel alongside on planes and when you're navigating the airport are almost always utter arseholes. And I'm sure, and I'm sure they don't, they don't behave in that way in their normal life. But for some, the airport seems to have a strange effect on people. (laughs) So yeah, I feel Danielle's, um, what's her name? Yeah, I feel Danielle McLean's pain. I think I would have, uh, I think I'd have said something to the woman. I I don't know how long it takes to fly to Gdansk. I'd imagine it's a couple hours. I mean, that'd be fucking unbearable. It's bad enough that you're on a Ryanair (laughs) plane (laughs) for a couple hours. You get some arsehole leaning over you for the whole flight. Yeah, surely you've got to say something. I mean, obviously, especially at the moment with COVID as well, in terms of they're in your personal space. And surely yeah you've got to say something i mean the woman should have said do you mind if i film out the window what's your filming the clouds like or <laughs> just i could understand if it was takeoff or landing but literally just filming clouds or surely just ask for a window seat as well if you're wanting to do that mm. I, I bet she doesn't even look back on that video it's the you know like people that film concerts and stuff that annoy me like are you going to go home and sit and watch that video <laughs> no probably not so What's the fucking point? Yeah. But yeah, I would probably be saying like, uh, I'd like to think I would say something, but I don't know if I would. I I think I would be passive aggressive and say, would you like to swap seats? Or something along those lines, rather than actually saying, hoi, what the fuck do you think you're doing? (laughs) (laughs) 
I know it's. I mean, I, there was one time when I was landing in Kuwait, and a guy next to me he wanted to like film the landing, and he he did that. He, he just um, shoved his arm in front of me. I was sitting by the window, and he said, "But then when I, I kind of turned to give him a kind of incredulous look, and he, he then I mean, he didn't speak very good English, and he was like, "Sorry, sorry, I just need picture," and I was like, "Oh, okay, fair enough." Because um, I was ready to turn and say, "What the fuck?" I just I was flying back. From, I was flying back from the Philippines, so I'd it's a it's a long old flight from the. In Manila to the Middle East, like ten hours, and I had to yeah. I had to fly through Oman. So I was fucking knackered. You know, I was all I wanted to do was to get home and bloody get my arse on the sofa. So it wasn't the best time. It wasn't as polite as I as I usually would be. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, fucking hell. I mean, I can't imagine anything worse. There was another time I was flying back to Kuwait from Beirut, and I asked. I always ask for an aisle seat. Usually, that's something I've learned to do. I'll say because I actually yeah. put in the aisle because one, I'm quite tall, so I can all if I can always stick my legs out, stretch them out a little bit. And two, when the plane lands, I like to get the fuck off there as quickly as I can. So like I'm up and you know I'm I'm not one of these people that gets up as the plane is still taxiing. I'm not one of those arseholes. Um, but no. you know as soon as the lights go out, I like to be on my feet, getting my bag, getting off the plane. Mm. But this time when I was coming back from Beirut, they said that. It have any they only had middle seats so i was sat in between two two lebanese guys and neither of them gave me the armrest so i'm just sitting there with my arms fucking yeah cunts (laughs) so yeah i feel poor old danielle mclean's pain what's your first story this week okay my first story you know it's getting bad greg when you read a story and you think have we covered this on the swally before because It's got quite a few things that definitely sound like the type of thing we would have covered. So just in case I'm in some sort of still a bit of a COVID dream, can you let me know if we have covered this? (laughs) I don't think we have, though. And as soon as I uh, say the first line, you'll you'll probably know why I think that it sounds like something we would have done before. Uh, So this is from the Daily Record this week. A topless Scots man brought the A9 dual carriageway to a standstill by staggering drunkenly across the road to berate a flock of sheep. Uh, uh, Thomas Degnan hurled abuse at the sheep after collapsing in the central reservation as numerous drivers were forced to swerve to stop avoid hitting him. The 42-year-old also urinated on the side of a car and then opened the vehicle door and continued to do so on a nine-year-old boy sitting in the back. Now, that's not funny, so I, I feel bad about that. The sheep's quite funny, though. A Perth Sheriff Court was told that Degnan was so drunk he had no recollection of the incident or why he decided to target a field full of sheep. Uh, Sheriff Francis Gill said, Your behaviour during this incident was appalling. It is likely to have caused trauma to your partner and to the children involved. It is also good fortune that your actions did not cause harm to drivers who had to swear have to avoid you. You say you have no recollection of this incident because you were drunk. That is no excuse. <laughs> uh, fiscal dispute Bill Kermode told the court that Degnan had stormed out of his car after an argument with his partner whilst they were at a filling station near Glen Eagles. Staff at the filling station contacted police because he was shouting at her. Then he went to the rear of the car and urinated. Whilst continuing to urinate, he walked round and opened the door. Uh, He then urinated on the shocked child in the car, and as the vehicle was driven away by the child's mother. He then staggered into the petrol station shop. It was quite obvious he was under the influence of alcohol, (laughs) and he was shouting incoherently before returning to the forecourt. He then stumbled onto the A9, causing vehicles to swerve, slow down and stop, and then he made his way into the central reservation before falling onto the ground. He then stood up and on his way to cross back to the filling station, 
uh, he then caused vehicles to take evasive action. A staff member began to signal drivers to slow down. Uh, so the police attended and found him topless and shouting at sheep in a nearby field. <laughs> he was extremely under the influence and struggled to walk and speak to the police. When quizzed about his behaviour, he said, I don't remember. Uh, his partner, surprisingly, refused to give her uh, a statement to the police. Right. Uh, so... He, uh, he admitted acting in a threatening and abusive manner at the filling station um, on the 28th of May last year. Um, he also admitted causing fear and alarm by repeatedly shouting and swearing and striking the window of a vehicle. Um, he admitted urinating on the car and opening the door. The state that he uh, yeah forced vehicles to take evasive action. Um, he also admitted a second charge of assaulting the boy by urinating on him. Uh, so uh, his solicitor said that he and his partner are working things out. The relationship is in a much better place. He is not consumed any alcohol since this and he has no recollection of the offence due to his level of intoxication. Uh, here's the old chestnut as well. He was also on medication for a foot injury which combined with the alcohol was not a good mix. He's very fortunate and he would like to thank all the members uh, of the public who swerved and were not injured <laughs> as a result. Uh, he, he himself is very lucky to not be injured uh, that he was crossing a very busy dual carriageway. Uh, so yeah, he was uh, sentenced to carry out 150 hours of unpaid work and he was placed under a supervision order for 12 months. So it was a light-hearted kind of in terms of that he was uh, decided to berate a flock of sheep but uh, obviously not so funny about urinating on a child. I think we should um, we should perhaps create and license a kind of culture swally bingo slash drinking game. <laughs> so every, every time one of us, when we're doing the news, says hurled abuse, <laughs> drunken Scots man, drunken Scots woman, maybe three. I think a topless man is also yeah. quite a... <laughs> <laughs> Public masturbation. <laughs> um, and also having some sort of strange excuse for their... Uh, in fact, yeah. it, it does crop up a lot when these guys are drunk. They say, I, I can't remember. I've got no memory of it. Yeah. And usually they then say, oh, I was on medication for a <laughs> foot injury or something. It's always, yeah, there's always an excuse. It's never just, I got pissed and decided it would be funny to shout at sheep. Yeah. No, I know. That's um, it's pretty specialist. I mean, like, I think it's everyone's point. The, the A9 is notorious, a notoriously bad road for accidents mm. and it's busy and stuff. So he was really lucky that he never got ran over. But then why take it out on the poor sheep? They're just in the field, minding their own business, you know? You never know. Like, if he's just angry about something and then he's seen the sheep and he's like, and you, you cunt, what are you looking at? And has just stormed over to have a go at them about it. I, I think he's pretty lucky that he got off with 150 hours community service when you compare him to in the last episode we had the guy wanking outside ibrox and he got like 180 days in jail <laughs> sure. i think i think perhaps the fact that his partner refused to make a statement might have um made it you know might have saved him a bit of more severe punishment perhaps yeah i think you're right yeah i think that he's uh he's quite lucky in this instance that he got off uh quite lightly so um he hasn't had a drink since so i hope that he stays on the straight and narrow and avoids petrol stations and and sheep for uh, <laughs> for the near future uh, as well he could have said right if if he was a st johnson fan right he could have said oh aberdeen beat my team that day and i got drunk and i just went and took my frustration out and that's why on the sheep that's why i shouted at the sheep because the dawn speaks st johnson yeah. but i don't know why yeah. it'd been it'd been at least it'd been an inventive excuse well, yeah, that's true. I suppose it is more inventive than I was on foot medication and I shouldn't have been drinking. Yeah, like. if the judge was a, 
I said Johnson's fan, he might have gone a bit easier on him. Well, fair enough. Yeah, it's, oh, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. bloody stinking Don's fans. Uh, quite right. Give those sheep some abuse. Yeah. Yeah. 50 quid fine for pissing on a little boy. And uh, <laughs> we, won't, we won't say anything else about the other things. <laughs> there you go. On your way. Don't do anything again. Yeah. I do. I like find it amusing that the, the staff, they, they had to wait until he actually came in before they realised he was intoxicated. I don't know what gave it away in terms of the, <laughs> the shouting angrily, getting out and then having a piss against the car. Yeah. It's it's and ha- normal behaviour, really. And having no top on. <laughs> the north <Nordic's> a- <laughs> Yes. Well, it was May, so maybe it was a sunny day. Maybe. You know what it's like in Scotland? The, the first sight of sun and the uh, taps off. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be honest, he's not the, there's a photo of Thomas um, arriving at court. He has on what I, I can only say looks like a fake Lyle and Scott polo shirt <laughs> um, and a jacket. And, and what hair he has clinging on to is it does look like he spat in his hand and just wiped it down on his forehead <laughs> to, to try and look like that. So um, yeah, anyway. Never mind. Good luck, Thomas. I hope you're uh, you're on the straight and narrow now. Uh, so, what uh, what else have you seen this week, Greg? Well, as as we just alluded to, right? Usually, our stories, you know, they usually involve someone's misfortune, a bit of the like, unusual behaviour or whatever. So, I thought I would just take, I would change the tone entirely and yeah. um, celebrate uh, a really positive story that comes from Aberdeen Live. Uh, it was up on the 11th of April, so it's, it's a few weeks old. But this is the Aberdeen coach who invented the football dugout, as we know it Ooh. now. So uh, uh-huh. Donald Coleman, uh, he, was, he was born in Renton in 1878. He would have a successful footballing career, playing for Aberdeen over 300 times, winning four caps for Scotland. Um, but it's his impact off the pitch uh, is, is what he's remembered for. He would discover his, loving, his love for coach when he came back from World War I. One, uh, he became a player coach at Dumbarton. However, it was during a summer stint coaching in Norway that the former Scotland international would come up with his innovative and unique idea. Coleman was obsessed with player positioning and possession-based play, fully focusing on his players' footwork. When he returned to Aberdeen in 1931, he remembered the way the Norwegian coaches would shelter from the weather in open-face huts. He ordered staff at the Tordre to dig a sunken shelter at the side of the pitch so he could be in eye-line with his players' feet to watch the way they worked with the ball more closely. The coach was now closer to the action and his notes remained dry no matter the weather. A few years after the installation of the first ever dugout in football, Everton visited Pataudry for a friendly and they were amazed by the innovation. They were so impressed by the shelter that they introduced dugouts to Goodison Park when they got back to Liverpool. The dugout at Pataudry remained installed at the halfway line until 1968 when the main stand was redeveloped. Before his groundbreaking idea, managers would just sit on a bench at the side of the pitch. The dugout quickly spread throughout the world of football following its introduction. Now teams from around the globe and at every level of the game play on a pitch where there are dugouts, and it's all down to Donald Coleman. His legacy still lives on. Uh, His great-granddaughter, Rachel Corsi, plays for Aston Villa Ladies, and she captains the Scotland women's team. Um, But um, Donald was inducted into the Aberdeen Hall of Fame in 2018, and there is a plaque up. Um, for some reason, they haven't said exactly where it is. It's obviously in Aberdeen because you can see the distinctive granite bricks, but there's a plaque. Uh-huh. Um, Donald Coleman, 1878 to 1942, captain and trainer of Aberdeen FC, inventor of the football dugout, lived here. 
Maybe we'll try and find out where that yeah. is and we can maybe go in a wee look when we're back in Aberdeen. But I thought, yeah. man, I lived in Aberdeen for years and I had no idea about Donald Coleman and how uh, it was a, an Aberdeen an Aberdeen coach had invented the dugout. It's massive, right? It's the, the two kind of famous facts about Pataudry Stadium, that it was the, the first ground to have a dugout yep. and it was the first all-seater stadium in the UK. Right. Was Pataudry. And now it's a complete shithole falling apart. But <laughs> it was the. <laughs> that's uh, that's always the kind of two main facts about Pataudry that's always yeah. quite a, a good thing. But yeah, that's a, a fantastic story. I didn't realise that Rachel Corsi was his um, his granddaughter. I know that she yeah. is the yep. Scotland uh, captain. So that's a. Uh, oh, wow. I did not realise that at all. Yep. No, that's wonderful. Something like that, that, as you say, that they're, someone from Aberdeen has had such an impact mm. in. In world football and if you think how much dugouts have kind of progressed nowadays like his original dugout was I guess kind of like a bunker yeah way, with a great idea on the eye line whereas now they're all sitting in basically armchairs <laughs> yeah. like sponsored by Audi at the yeah the side of the stadium and all heated seats and everything it's uh, the level of comfort that they have nowadays but they don't seem as sort of sunken you know what I mean like it says in the article no. that he wanted to kind of pay attention to where the players were putting their feet when they were moving the ball around and stuff and that's why he had it so can, they had it I guess about a bit deeper, I guess, than um, than what you see in the in the modern game. You know, they they seem just to be they seem to be in the same level as the pitch, right? Or maybe slightly, yeah, slightly uh, sunken. No, I'd say they are. Yeah, it's it's basically back to the original in terms of the. It is almost like they're sitting on benches at the yeah, site yeah. that you have nowadays, and that's why you do see you don't see it as often nowadays. But you used to get managers that would often go and sit in the stand so they could get a better view of the the pitch mm-hmm. and I think see what maybe the fans can see as well so mm-hmm. um, or I think maybe they have people sitting there maybe relaying information to them but yeah because they need to be on the touchline to shout instructions but yeah it does seem that they've they've almost departed from that kind of idea of a, a sunken dugout yeah so maybe we'll maybe we can go and if his old gaff isn't too far away, we can maybe go and have a maybe go and check it out when we're in town at the end of May. Yeah, I'll have to have a, a Google about that and see where it is. I mean, we've got plenty of time in our hands, so we can <laughs> have a wander around and see. Yeah. <laughs> That'll kill five minutes. <laughs> Get our photo taken there. Yeah. yeah, we'll have a little photo shoot. That'll uh, kill a bit more time. So yeah. I thought that would have a change oh. of pace there for us this week. Well, um, I'm sure. Oh, very nice. I'm sure you're going to bring us right back to <laughs> back to normal with the next story. Well, I, actually, I'm I'm not really. Um, I have a bit of a different story this week as well, and it also has a bit of an Aberdeen slant on it. So obviously, seagulls. We've discussed mm. seagulls before in the Swally. They're they're mm-hmm. quite notorious in Aberdeen and they're a a bit of a menace in terms of the stealing people's food and stuff and you often see clips of seagulls sweeping on sweeping yeah swooping Swooping onto people swooping onto people and uh, being a general menace in Aberdeen and I think I've told the story before that Aberdeen actually hired a it was a kestrel or an eagle to um to scare away seagulls on the pitch but uh, it ended quite badly for a seagull one day so it stopped anyway so this uh, this story is from the uh, the scottish mirror Mm. uh, this week and it's a ufo expert who believes that seagulls could be an alien species sent to earth to spy on humanity and honestly 
it makes a lot of sense. That's the article that oh, says hey. that, not me. Uh, so this is Nick Pope, who worked as a government advisor and investigated UFOs for the Ministry of Defence, has urged people to be distrustful of these greedy gulls. He said that besides stealing chips and ice creams, they could pose a more serious threat by collecting evidence for an advanced alien race. And Nick said that aliens could be using the birds to survey us and send secrets back to the mothership. Uh, he said, if aliens want to hack into and control a living organism or construct a drone that's a perfect mimic, it would be best to choose something ordinary, like a seagull or a housefly. Something you wouldn't normally pay much attention to, perhaps. But all the time, it would be spying on us, recording everything, and sending information about us back to the alien homeworld. So next time you move to swat a fly, watch out. Your actions might start an interstellar war. Nick added that if aliens are secretly monitoring Earth, they'll be doing it close up and personal, not with telescopes, uh, and it would be an, a way to enable them to get crystal clear images and recordings from right under our noses. He thinks that any civilization capable of getting here from other star systems, um, I don't know why I'm stuttering so much today, uh, any civilization capable of getting here from other star systems undoubtedly has technology that would seem like magic to us, um, and they might be able to implant a living creature with tiny cameras and recording devices. So yeah, he thinks that it would be indistinguishable from any other animal or bird or insect. I know it sounds like science fiction, but it isn't. So Nick, uh, I want some of what you've been smoking, but yeah. this is a, uh, I've heard this before in terms of not aliens, but there's a, it's not a big conspiracy theory in the States that the government killed all the birds about 40 years ago and implanted drones that fly around and spy on people. A genuine conspiracy theory. I've heard it on a podcast before. People think that, I can't remember if it was JFK or if it was Nixon. I think it was Nixon killed all the birds and employed these robot birds that to uh, to spy on the the states uh the citizens of the united states i would have to look that up so do you believe that seagulls are and uh not an alien race but alien technology that are just stealing chips and ice cream and reporting back on what the kids at robert gordon's in aberdeen are buying for their lunch i mean when you said that your man nick was contending that it would be something that you wouldn't really pay much attention to i think maybe nick needs a bit of attention <laughs> and uh, that's what this is all about I mean, he may be feeling a bit neglected or something and he wants people to pay attention to him because i've never heard such utter horseshit <laughs> in my fucking life what a lot of nonsense i mean it, it, this is a trusted man greg he's a former government advisor investigated ufos for the ministry of defense yeah I mean, being a government, being anything to do with the government is not a particularly uh, laudable thing at the moment, especially this week when this when that minister got caught watching porn in the got caught watching porn on his phone in the House of Parliament, and his defence was was that he was trying to look up tractors and he must mm -hmm. have spelt something wrong or something. Um, so yeah, I don't think being a former government advisor is going to buy Nick a hell of a lot of credibility. I mean, the seagulls are they can be a nuisance. I know that the, the sort of older generations in Torrey, just outside Aberdeen, um, they believed that the seagulls had the souls of the fishermen that were lost at sea uh, in them. I remember hearing that when I lived in Aberdeen. And to be honest, that, mm. that sounds more plausible <laughs> than what fucking Nick's on about, <laughs> to be quite honest. Yeah, it's uh, I, I don't quite know where he's going with that in terms of the... It's a very odd theory to have that... You know, why seagulls? Why would you pick? Because seagulls aren't 
you don't get them in every town, no. really, do you? Surely it'd be pigeons would be a better suggestion. Yeah. Or is it because seagulls can maybe, they're, they're a bit harder, you know? <laughs> You're not going to mess with a seagull, really. Yeah, I mean, those seagulls in Aberdeen, they, they can, they're fucking huge sometimes. When you see the one up close with its wings fully out, they're massive, you know yeah. what I mean? But um, yeah. but, the, but the thing is, if you if you consider, like, a seagull's behaviour, they don't, like, sit on your window ledge and kind of pee in your house and anything like that. They're, like, they're just scavenging for bits of food all the time. Or... You see them bobbing about on the sea. You know <laughs> that's all they're doing. They're not. I don't know, like what what they're surveilling from Aberdeen Beach. You know, thirty forty feet out to sea. Well, who knows, Greg? You know, information that might not seem relevant to us could be very relevant really. to our alien overlords. You just never know. Information about the world's hardest surfers that take their boards out off Aberdeen Beach. <laughs> Men and women who know neither cold nor hot. <laughs> well, maybe we'll find out one day when our yeah. uh, aliens come down to talk to us and they'll tell us all the information that they've discovered from the seagulls. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I'm really not sure. I'm really not sure what they would, what any advanced alien race could hope to learn from the way we fucking manage our lives. You know what I mean? <laughs> what, what not to do. <laughs> Oh, they were minds. Um, have you seen anything else this week? Uh, no, it wasn't. It was a bit of a. It was one of those news weeks where sort of ninety percent of the headlines and stories in the Scottish media were all fucking grim as fuck, like super yeah, grim. Yeah, they, they really were. The only other thing I saw that I thought, why I can see why this is is made news, of course, because it often does. And did you see about the uh, SNP MP Mary Black? Mm. So. This has happened before. I think like Diane Abbott got done for this in the in England. She was caught drinking a can of Marks and Spencer's gin and tonic on a train. And of course, drinking on a train is not allowed moment. So um and she had to make like a public apology for this stuff. So Murray Black, who is the SP member for Paisley and Renfrewshire South, was um filmed sculling a can of tenants on a train. <laughs> on her way back from Air United versus Partick Thistle. <laughs> and there's a huge crowd, like, round her, and there's guys with bottles of Buckfast and stuff, and she's just sat there, literally, sculling a can of tenants. <laughs> and people are saying, oh, it's outrageous, She, the, the booze ban's been in place for 18 months, there's no exemption for politicians. Oh, come on. She's on her way back from a match. Like, I understand if she was, you know, sipping a Prosecco or something, but she's sculling a can of tenants. Good on her. <laughs> What's what's the um what's the reason for the booze ban on the train? Is it to do with the pandemic? I'm not sure. Uh, since November 2020, alcohol has been banned in stations and on trains at any time of day, and anyone showing signs of intoxication are not permitted to travel, and they're not allowed to carry visible alcohol open or unopened it says so i never realized this um but yeah apparently it's in place i think i did read about this on the aberdeen forum people were were saying can you have a beer on the train and stuff and just, yeah it's, i think it's a case of as long as you don't act the goat right. and you know if you have like a little can kind of by the side of you or something and you're sipping on it you'll be all right yeah but i, I think it's to discourage you know having like a, a 12 pack of tenants on your table or something and, and getting pissed but these guys are all openly drinking but i guess football crowd the conductor is probably just like i can't be arsed yeah i know like, this so he probably he probably doesn't agree with the the rule either he's probably one he probably feels that it's 
I mean, like one of the best things about going on the train is the fact that you can have a couple of beers. You know what I mean? Especially with a long journey. Yeah, I agree with you on that. There was a lot of uh, train journeys I would have had down to Glasgow mm-hmm. or down further south, and it was uh, it was lovely. In fact, we had a good train journey down it was down to Glasgow. We went with our mutual friend, and we were taking the piss out of him. Yeah, that was on the way back up. Yeah, it was the way back. Yeah, I mean, I remember when I um, was living in Glasgow, and I used to come up to Aberdeen to visit you guys like fairly regularly. I got the train after work one night. So I was up there by about five, half five, and I ended up sitting beside these guys who lived in the kind of Glasgow area, older than me, but they were going offshore. And the carryout that they had to the, to get through, and it's about, it's probably about three hours, maybe just inside three hours from Queen Street to Aberdeen train station. I mean, mm. honestly, they they had, they they, had, they they all had like six cans each plus. One of them had a bottle of spice rum. Another guy had a had a had a like a, like a, like a seventy five like a like a kind of bar bottle. Another guy had a half bottle of whiskey. I had a, I had a few drinks with them on the way up. I was fucking hammered by the time I stepped off the train in Aberdeen. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's fucking starving and steaming. Uh, it's just part of the train journey experience, though. I would say getting a carry out and getting on the train. Get your carry out, your daily record, your son, copy of Viz, and yeah, off you go. I know. Wait, wait, when I saw that Maddie Black story, I think I saw it, maybe it was on the Scottish Sun I saw it, and they, they, they described her as guzzling down tenants. <laughs> it was like, obviously, Maddie Black's politics and Rupert Murdoch's politics don't align. But yeah, according to the Scottish Sun, she was guzzling down a can of tenants. That's shocking behaviour. Good <laughs> honour, I say. Well done, Mary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. okay, then. Right. Uh, well, I guess that sums up the news in Scotland this week. So before we go on to what we're going to be talking about today, let's have a little word from our sponsors. If you go down to the Brown Bear Sale, you're in for a big surprise. It's lovely to shop at the Brown Bear Sale, where everything looks so nice. Room after room, it's all on display. There's even a place where children can play. Brown Bear's the store that's really packed full of surprises. If you go down to the Brown Bear Sale, you hardly believe the price. There's lots in stock and no need to wait. Sundays till six and weekdays till eight. From there's the store that's full of bargain prices. You're in for a big surprise. Okay, Greg, so it was your choice this week on the Swally. So why don't you tell us what we're going to be talking about today? All right, well, I chose the 1999 movie starring Billy Connolly, Ken Stoll and... Francesca Annis, uh, The Debt Collector. Um, I, hadn't, I hadn't seen it since, it, I always seen it once, and that was when it first came out. I was keen to watch it again. Um, so it was written and directed by Scottish dramatist Anthony Nielsen, stars Billy Conley, Ken Stott, Francesca Annis, Ian MacDonald, and a whole host of little appearances from some very familiar faces. It's The story is loosely based on... Jimmy Boyle, uh, who was a, a gangster and gang member in Glasgow in the 1960s. He uh, went to jail for 20 years and he discovered art and kind of reformed himself through art. It's this debt collector tells a story of Nicky Dryden, played by Billy Connolly, who is a former uh, gangster uh, loan 
Bone Shark, I guess, is uh, notorious for torturing and wounding the people that owed money to his boss. He's arrested near the beginning of the movie um, by Ken Stott's policeman Gary Kelty and much like the aforementioned Mr Boyle, reforms himself in prison, becomes an artist and is released. But Gary Kelty, uh, played by Ken Stott, um, can't forget the things that he did and sets out on a bit of a vendetta against Nicky to show him for what he feels he is a thug and a gangster as opposed to like a well-adjusted artist so what did you think on your revisit of the debt collector well similar to you i've only seen this once and it was round about the time it came out i I was trying to remember it it must have been when it was first shown on tv right i i saw it because i i distinctly remember watching it and i know where i was i was in my bedroom in aberdeen i remember and watching it again there were a few key scenes that I definitely remember from that first view. I don't think I rented it or anything, so it must have been when it was first aired on TV. Yeah. Um, watching it again, I, I apart from a couple of, of scenes that I could remember in my head, I couldn't really remember a huge amount about it. So it was a... Yeah, it was it was great to kind of watch it again for like kind of almost the first time and see actors in terms of Ken Stott. And of course, we've covered a few Billy Conley pieces mm-hmm. on the swally before but this was kind of right in his time when he was being taken yeah seriously as an actor around mrs brown and and things like that so this was quite a, a key piece for him yeah i mean he he was on a kind of burn uh billy conley that you mm. say he had, he had done um mrs brown with uh, judy dench in 1997 um very very well received so like yeah i guess you know this was like his you know if you look at all the things billy conley's done there's not many things that he played he's played the lead in you know Mm. and i think this was definitely his first lead role as uh, nicky dryden Uh, but the same year i mean this this, this must have been one one of billy conley's best years in terms of just making good choices and being in successful films because he did still crazy which is the sort of ensemble movie with bill nighy and jimmy neal and timothy spall about the bands getting back together and he did oh. the boondock saints in the u.s the movie with uh, your man out of uh, the walking dead in it and william defoe and that's a really good film you know so he's really a great year for him and it doesn't really get any doesn't really he doesn't really get to that again mm. in his career as an actor. Everything else that he does after The Debt Collector, he's he's a co-star at best, you know? Apart from maybe The Man Who Sued God. But that, that one he did in Australia, you know? And, and uh, I mean, the, the items that we've covered on the swally that he's been in, this is by far, as you say, it's his leading role. Mm-hmm. This is by far his most serious role as well yeah. in terms of everything we've covered. And it's almost a trajectory. We, we had him in, you know, just another Saturday where he's, he's very much just playing himself yeah. in terms of that. And then, of course, he's in Down Among the Big Boys, which there's a lot of comedy mm-hmm. in that role as well. And then, of course, recently... It, it, his character is kind of the comic relief in a way mm. in the big man, although he does, you know, it's quite a serious role. But yeah. this, there's not a lot of comedy in this. No. In terms of, it's um, it's a bloody difficult film to watch in places. There's, there's at least three mm. scenes that I would say that I found very difficult to watch. And yeah, it's, it's definitely not a laugh a minute. He's a very serious character. 
and you can tell obviously he's a, a troubled individual but um so in terms of saying what what did i think of it yeah i thought it was a very interesting um film to watch i did enjoy it i, I think the main reason that i enjoyed it so much is ken stott's performance which we'll, yeah. we'll come into but yeah yeah there's a couple of places it's it's really difficult to watch kind of thought it was a bit long in places as well mm, it could be a little yeah, bit yeah. Um, cut out yeah o- overall i really i did enjoy watching it but um yeah i mean tonally it's a bit of a strange film because like the the, the opening scene which i think is it might be the, the best scene in the film potentially yeah but <laughs> the opening scene where we're in the mid-70s we're in the bar they've got billy Con- they've, they've done a great job of making billy Conley look like he looked in the 1970s, you know what I mean? Albeit he's hair a little bit shorter and without the big long beard. They're playing the the Seeker by The Who. You know what I mean? That's the sort of sound. They, they play the whole song and it's the sort of soundtrack to the scene. And, and the movie feels a bit like it's going to be something a lot, a sort of kind of Tarantino esque in terms of format. Not necessarily in terms of the plot, but in terms of the kind of format mm. where, you know, the some kind of, you know, maybe not so well-known pop songs, unexpected violence maybe here and there. But then like, when the when it comes up, when it comes into the modern day, you know, it's just, it's it feels like it's it's overly dramatic. And a, mm-hmm. a couple of the scenes, one in particular that we'll talk about later, I kind of felt, well, I don't really understand why they felt the need to have the character do that. You know what I mean? Because, because what he was doing was bad enough anyway in terms of terrorising a woman. You know, because, and the thing is as well, with that character, we're kind of supposed to see him as the virtuous one, you know, you know, Ken Stott is Kelty, he's a policeman, he's, you know, he he makes a couple of speeches in the film about how important he sees the police as being and the role of a police officer and the duty of a police officer and stuff. And then, um, you know, they, they sort of make him something else at the, in the for the last act of the movie. And they, you're sort of left wondering who you're supposed to root for, you know? As you say, I think you hit the nail on the head. That opening scene is brilliant mm. in yeah. terms of the, the atmosphere. As you say, you've got the who on the background. You've got the snooker tables behind. You know, you, you really feel we've been in like a snooker hall like that. Yeah, with yeah. The smoky atmosphere and the, 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 just, the, just the sound of the balls hitting each other in the background. Yeah. Billy Conley is very menacing the way mm-hmm. he's, he's sitting there. And you genuinely, you're kind of working, what the hell's going on here? And the beautiful speech he kind of gives about coming the fuck. And yeah. you're instantly thinking, this is, oh, I like this, I like this. And then when Stott flashes the warrant card, says you're under arrest, you got the, the flash of the knife and hitting the yeah. table. The beautiful old McEwen's export ashtray just dancing there yeah. as the, the <laughs> knife hits the table. And yeah, you're thinking, oh yes, um, this is going to be good. And then it's just mm. like, okay, eight, 18 years later, here's Conley driving with uh, this woman who obviously turns out is his wife and off to his his art exhibition. Yeah, I think, okay, so this is going to be a film about how he's, I kind of don't know where he's going. Has he been redeemed? Is he still doing stuff underground? But uh, yeah, when Kelty comes in to the exhibition at the beginning, then you're like, ah, okay, this is where it's going. He's still keeping an eye on Nicky after all these years, and he's just waiting for him to slip up. Fancy fucking warrants. Craig, do you want to escort this gentleman out? Call the police. He is the police. 
Landed on your feet then, Nicky. How's yourself? Uh, no too good, tell you the truth. My mincing tatties is repeating on me. What we all this talk of forgiveness. As you say, it, it, kind of, it's odd the way the film goes. It, it is just Kelty terrorising Nicky for the majority of the film. And I would have to ask, why? Is yeah. it because he just he's waiting for him to slip up? You're almost thinking he's done something to him in the past. But I don't, I don't understand. I, I think it's a... I mean, that's, a, I guess, another discussion point. Nicky's served his time. So Kelty is, is so... And as you say, he delivers a couple of passionate speeches about the police and what they're there for. And and he does say, you know, we failed. or But he's he's arrested, Nicky. He's, yeah. He's served his time. Why is he having this one-man vendetta against him? Is it because he thinks he's he's obviously done a lot more than he yeah. served his time for, and he should he shouldn't have been let out of jail, and he's just waiting for something else to happen? I think that's the implication, you know, in the scene where Valerie's sister is getting married, and Kelsey turns up at the wedding mm. with all the with where they got a load of victims of uh, Nicky's um, from you know from before he went to when he went to jail. You know, he's got, he's got the mother of. The son he's suspected of murdering. Oh no, he did. He went to jail for murdering. He's got people that have been scarred and everything like that. So they, I think that is supposed to inform Kelty's behaviour in that. Yeah, he served eighteen years, but in his mind, that hasn't been enough punishment to fit all the things that he's done, and he, he's taken it upon himself. And I think the fact as well that Dryden's sort of reinvented himself, and all these kind of well-to-do arty people are all over him, you know, interested in his work, and he sort of joined this uh, more elevated level of society that just makes Kelty sick, you know? As you say, Kelty's still working as a, a police officer. He's looking after his, his mother. He, he mm -hmm. doesn't have a, a wife or a significant other, and that's very yeah. true. Maybe he is jealous of Nicky coming out and as you say being well to do he's doing interviews on the radio and Kelty's kind of losing the plot you know fuck fuck yeah yeah you cunt and as he's phoning him up he's obviously jealous about Valerie that that Nikki's mm. now married to as he calls her a classy bit of gash and <laughs> yeah. he's Kelty shh keep your voice down wouldn't you want to wake your lovely lady wife now wouldn't we I mean, could be the money, could be the fame, but you know what I think? I think it's just shagging a murderer turns it on. Fuck you. Right, and I think. Proper, but then they go home to their milksop husbands and dream about a real man. Nicky, hang up. Put up with their wee affairs. Someone who turn the heads in safe ways. Some knuckle dragon cunt. Murder if need be. It's, it's, it's something, you know, and he even shows his mother a photo of Valerie saying that it's his yeah. new girlfriend. It's yeah. something that he's, he's very. He's an unhinged character, and mm. but you're kind of on his side in a way up until just towards the end, where I was to say we'll come to, but that's when he lost all sympathy from my side. Um, yeah, but it's it's a strange reason that he's just a one man vendetta against him. But 
it, it's almost like he's, as you say, maybe he's jealous of him, uh, of him trying to his new life. But again, there's there's a scene where after Valerie's son has been murdered and the uh, and it's a funeral and Nicky comes out of the crematorium, I guess, and he sees Kelty on the other side of the cemetery and the camera mm. comes to Kelty and Kelty says something like, that's enough, Nicky, or something like that. So I thought, so that's him. He's, you know, he's not a bad guy. Although, although like, he's suspected of he suspected of killing Valerie's son. He sort of said, "It's like he sort of thinks, right? Well, look, enough's enough. You know, they mm. you've lost this, you've lost this stepchild, and he seems like he's 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 done with it until Nikki sort of inadvertently has mm. kel- has killed his mother, uh, seriously assaulted, and that just." To your point, yeah, that yeah. just kind of pushes him over the edge, you know? Yeah, you're right, actually. That makes complete sense. You're In terms of that graveyard scene, when he does say that's enough, Nicky, that's yeah. very true. That, that is almost him saying, okay, right, we're done now. Um, that's enough. But yeah, obviously he does uh, get pushed over the edge again with his um, yeah. his mum's assault. Yeah, but, I mean, but they could have... Um, I don't understand what, you know why Nielsen felt he had to take Kelty in that direction. You know what I mean? Because he, he, he could still have had what happened to Kelty's mother happen in the script. But Kelty sort of kind of come out of it the bigger man. Because at the end of the day, mm. his mum was assaulted because Dryden's gone to his old boss and asked him to find somebody to teach Kelty a lesson. You know what I mean? Mm. And it's just unfortunate that Donnie picks Ian McDonald's um, flipper, who is probably the most unhinged character in the whole movie, um, to do it, you know? Flipper, played by Ian Robertson, obviously is... He looks up to to Nicky Dryden. He uh, aspires to kind of be him. And it's all about the policy that Nicky Dryden had when he was a debt collector. As he does say to Valerie in in one scene, the the policy effectively was if, if you couldn't pay the money then rather than take it out on you they would take it out on your loved ones or you know, relatives or mm-hmm. as he alludes to children as well so yeah i think that's why flipper has, has obviously read his book and just idolizes this guy because as we see all the newspaper clippings on his wall so he thinks that he's doing him a favor by sort of a homage to what he used to do of of this policy but of course nothing could really be further from the truth it's not what nicky wanted at all yeah exactly so yeah i just i don't i don't know why i don't know maybe nielsen doesn't like the police i don't know but i i don't know why they, they felt that they felt that uh that, that happened to happen that had to happen to Kielty. and you know like the fact he has Kielty when he goes to try he goes to the to dryden's house to try and find him um the lovely south queen's ferry house what an amazing house that is, right? A big view mm, of the, yeah. a, big view, a view of the fourth and the Beautiful. fourth rail bridge out the window, demanding that. And and like, what would have you know? Like, he goes demanding to know where Nicky is, which is fair enough. But then to have him terrorise and then rape uh, Valerie, played by Francesca Annis, and he, he she still doesn't tell him. He only happens to come across the uh, invitation to the tattoo on the floor because she did, because she had what she she had an invitation and she she, she chose not to go. So uh, Dryden went by himself. I don't know, just a strange choice. Uh, I thought, but you know, I'm not a success. Well, that's it because you're thinking I'm I'm very much on the side of Kelty up until he rapes Francesca, and then you think, okay, yeah. I, 
I, I don't know who you feel sorry for here now. It, it's just all yeah, yeah. because and, and and you kind of feel sorry for Nicky in a way because do we think he is genuinely trying to put himself on the straight and narrow? He doesn't like talking about what's been done in the past. He tries yeah. to kind of avoid it when Francesca's asking him about the policy and things. You can, and it's a testament to Billy Conley's acting ability in this. You can tell he's really pained to talk about the things that he's done in the past. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he doesn't like to talk about it. When Flipper's asking him about, you know, if you could work for him and if you yeah. could collect money, he's just, I don't do that anymore. It's all behind yeah. me. He, uh -huh. he is genuinely trying to, to rebuild his life and be on the straight and narrow, but it, it's Kelty that effectively pushes him back into the violent lifestyle in mm -hmm. terms of when he takes out on flipper but of course it's it's so he's, he's really pushed him towards it so i do genuinely believe that nikki was trying to do the right thing yeah but kelty's pushed him there so that's why you kind of feel sorry for him but you also feel sorry for kelty because he kind of feels like he's trying to avenge the what's happened to these poor people mm -hmm. that nikki's taken out on you know back in the 70s you feel about you have sympathy for kelty anyway earlier in the film because he's you know, he, he's he's made he's suspended near the beginning of the film for his outburst or his intrusion at the art show. Then we see him at his mum's. You know, she she's she's worried about him because he's I guess he's supposed to be sort of middle aged. He's got no he's got he's got no family. He's just looking after his mum. You know, he's he's having to make up a girlfriend to make his mum feel a bit better about everything and he kind of teases her about the mansion that he's going to get her and all this kind of thing. So like, you do have sympathy for him but then just to have that sympathy that sympathy just drains away in the last sort of 15 minutes or 15-20 minutes of the movie. Yeah, it just becomes completely unhinged and it's just all consumed by his hatred of, of Nicky and he, yeah. he really wants to do anything. And as he says to him at the end, you know, he's, he's taken her away from him because... Yeah. Every time he looks at, uh, every time Valerie looks at Nikki now, she'll just see Kelty's face, and that's yeah. why he's trying to justify his actions and, and what he's done. Yeah, to himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I suppose like the the next kind of big part we've mentioned him already is a uh, flipper played by Ian Robertson. Um, a good role for him. He was mm. having he was having a good year that year as well. He did the Debt Collector. He did a, a if you remember a drama it was on Channel Four called Cycles. It was on in the late nineties. Mm. He was the part in that, and he was. He also had a small part in uh, Plunkett and McLean before being a regular on Grange Hill, of all things, as a fairly stereotypical wee Scottish neddy thug. <laughs> well, that's why I had in my notes because, of course, this is four years after he was in Small Faces, which yeah. we covered obviously last year. I think wherever you get your podcast still available. And I, I did think that his stint on Grage Hill obviously did him well in terms of his learning his acting chops because mm. he is brilliant in this. I mean, he's brilliant in small faces. Yeah. But you can see he's really matured and he is a very believable kind of nutter. But yeah, it's more of a his admiration for Nicky and, and and wanting to please him. But you know, the first scene where you see him and he's sort of standing, almost having this little taxi driver moment of yeah. asking in a mirror, and then cuts to him in the alleyway uh, asking this 
couple for the the tenor that he owes him. Yeah. Uh, and you instantly know that he's just this menacing character that's not to be trusted at all. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, they and I think actually, you know, I think one of the problems with the film is that it starts very strong in 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 how all the characters are introduced. All their scenes are really strong, especially this one that you're talking about with uh, when he's out in the van with his two mates, and he, you know, he ends up and and it's it's quite a you know they, I'm sure we've probably seen guys like that in our lives. You know what I mean? Maybe not. Maybe not quite as maybe not guys that would take it as far as flipper takes it but you know mm. just like fucking you know that's sort of thuggish little cunts but then of course he ends up knocking out miss hooley off by the mori instead of punching yes. her, instead of instead of punching her boyfriend poor old miss hooley yeah so but no he is he's he's good in this um i think he he, he, he does the edinburgh accent well although he does say raj a bit too often i think but he's uh a good part for him. He's, yeah, I think now he's he's a regular on River City, and he has a, a kind of hill walking program as well that he does. Oh yeah, for STV or BBC One Scotland. I'm not sure which. I've seen some clips of him like doing the West Highland Way and stuff. You know, as you say, I mean, obviously he sticks it on Miss Hooley, and mm. I find that scene quite uncomfortable, but it was okay. But the scene that I remember vividly watching when I watched it the first time, and as soon as I saw him and his mate breaking into the swimming pool, mm-hmm. I was like, ah, ah, shite, I remember what happens next. Yeah. And I do find it, I find it very uncomfortable when he slashes Ford Kiernan in yeah. the face. Yeah. And it's it's horrible to, to see that. And of course, it ends up effectively killing him because he has a heart attack. That's and right. yeah, a horrible kind of scene to watch. Just the, the sinisterness of he creeps up behind him effectively in the, mm. in the mm-hmm. pool. And then just gives him a big slash across the face with a knife. Yeah, and it was you know like it was good to see Ford Kiernan in there, but he um, when he turns to Flipper in the pool when he realizes he's behind him, mm. his angry face is the same angry face that he does in chewing the fat characters, like the angry guy in chewing the fat. <laughs> When you know when when he when he has Jack and still game looking angry, you know like his eyebrows his eyebrows kind of raise and do something weird and his sort of bottom jaw kind of drops down and everything. I mean you only see it for a split second before the the kind of act of violence, but you know but he, he's he's only got a couple of minutes on the screen and he fucking goes for it. For Kieran, oh yeah, give him his due, especially when you see him lying at the side of the pool and he's he's having the heart. I think he's supposed to be having the heart attack. Then mm. you just, I think it, when you when you see it, you think that he's in shock. Yeah, but you know, after we find out what happened to him, it's obviously that's when he's having his heart attack. But yeah, it's I, see, I thought when I was watching it that it was it was his friend that he stabbed, Flipper, in the pool. Mm. I don't know because he's because he sort of he's he's being pretty menacing even before the security guard catches them in the water. You know. Yeah, well, because he's speaking about how he knows Nicky Dryden, and his mates effectively taking the piss out of him, saying, "No, you don't." Yeah, and he's yeah getting a little bit kind of. Oh no, I know him. I know him. Very much uh, unhinged, and well, very unhinged because when he does speak to Nicky, Nicky kind of palms him off, and well, he doesn't. He you know takes him up, and they look at the the art, and then he Mm. kind of palms him off because he has to go to the wedding. Yeah, yeah. And when he sees Nicky just putting his arm on his stepson yeah then you can see the jealous rage and you're thinking oh no what's he gonna do and then he ends up fucking killing his stepson i mean one of the biggest 
sort of unanswered questions about this film is that is why did they not get an actor to play Valerie's son? Because that guy that plays him, he is fucking dreadful. He doesn't even look convincingly supposed to be dead. You know what I mean? When they when they when they take the sheet off and all that, I mean he is absolutely appalling. I don't know why they wouldn't just like, you know, who could you, who could you, who could you put in? You could have had fucking Joe McFadden or something and kind of given the character a bit of personality at least, you know what I mean? But he just, he's yeah. got, I don't think he has any lines. He sits about with his spiky hair and he's he's got a yeah. slightly gothy girlfriend and his mate and all that. And then he's smoking dope with his mum. And then he gets, mm. and then fucking, he gets plunged by Flipper, you know what I mean? Well, it'll come as no surprise to you, Greg, that that is his only acting credit that he he has there. <laughs> um, but then, did you notice who the uh, his girlfriend was? It's Shona McDonald, right? Is that yeah, it? yeah, who obviously goes on to yeah play Carol and Filth, and yeah. she's in The Scots, yeah. So um, thankfully she's gone on to a, a lot better things than her boyfriend, but I agree, yeah, he's, I think the only thing of note he really does is give a little flash of his belt buckle um, <laughs> for the wedding, which I, I could see is meant to be a a, a plot point later on when yeah. Nikki kind of takes it out on Flipper for what he did to to kill his mum, but yeah. he drops the belt buckle and you're thinking, oh, is he a way to discover this? But no, he doesn't even fucking notice it. Kind of stops beside him. For some reason, in my memory, the reason that Dryden beats Flipper to death, essentially, is because he sees him with the belt buckle or he, he got, mm. or Flipper was wearing it or something like that. In my memory, that's how that scene played out rather than it sort of the belt buckle rolling dramatically down the, the kind of alley. And like you say, fucking doesn't even notice. Yeah. So that, so that was purely for the audience's benefit. You know what I mean? Well, that's the way you've described it would make a lot more sense in terms of if he mm. had seen the belt buckle and then completely lost it. But yeah. yeah. So you see, and when he drops it and you see it rolling towards him, you're thinking, ah, ah okay, he's away to uh, realise and go back and maybe give him another do, and even though he's already yeah. dead. Yeah. He doesn't even fucking see it. Um, very, very strange part, that, in terms of the, yeah. what was the point of it? I, I don't feel that Billy Conley is always a brilliant actor. To be honest, I think yeah, there are things mm. that there's, there's there's things that he is good in. I don't think that he puts in a tour de force throughout this whole film. Albeit, mm. I do think there are scenes that he's very good in, and the one that I think he's the one that he's particularly good in is the scene that we're talking about. And it's you know after he's lost his temper and battered Flipper, and then he's trying yeah. he's trying to calm himself down. He's trying to sort of make it all right. Obviously, not realizing how much damage he's done to Flipper. I thought he was he was good there. He was really good. You know what I mean? I thought. Um, but yeah, they when he loses his patience at the wedding, that that whole bit is. I I, I laughed a bit at that. You know, they, when Ken Stott is leaving the wedding with everybody, and he's just all of a sudden without. You don't even see him kind of build up to it. He just like guilty. Everyone's after him. You know what I mean? Then rolling about in the grass as he's trying to strangle him. You know, I just thought maybe maybe played that a bit better. Yeah, I would agree with you on that. It maybe was a little bit over the top. I think uh, Ken Stott rescues that scene as well when you know when they're kind of pulled apart and yeah, he does say that you're sentence didn't end the day you stepped out of Sot and it's only just yeah. begun. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant performance from Stott overall, I think. Um, yeah, he's, he's really such good. A, such a wonderful way with a swear word as well because there's a lot of swearing at this film in terms of, you know, there's a lot of uses of the C word and there's a 
a lot of colourful language, but he's got a, a wonderful way around mm. it as well. I mean, and he he must have played a policeman more than maybe any other actor in his kind of peer group because he's obviously he's famous. Mm. He's a, he's obviously playing a policeman here. He played uh, D.I. Pat Chapel in The Vice. He played D.C.I. Metcalf in Messiah. Famously, he plays Rebus. In the in the TV adaptations of uh, Ian Rankin's books, you know what I mean. So like, and it's like I, I can't think of anybody else who's played a policeman more than Ken Stott. He's the he's the policeman in Shallow Grave as well. Oh, of course, yeah, Shallow Grave, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you could be right, yeah. He's uh, yeah, but he's very very good, very convincing as a kind of downtrodden policeman there. Yeah. Um, um, the other thing I thought about this as well is obviously it's set in Edinburgh, and but. I mean, a lot of it was filmed in Glasgow because mm. of part of the Glasgow Film Council. The Glasgow um, Film Fund, yeah. And, and I found that they really hammered home when they did have parts of Edinburgh to show. Yeah. It was almost like a... Honestly, honestly, it is Edinburgh. <laughs> it, it, in terms of the... For example, as we said, Nicky and Valerie's house, which is fucking incredible, but it's, you know, it looks right onto the Fourth Road Bridge. Yeah. And then I think it's the... It's when you discover that Valerie's son has been killed and you just see all these random shots of Edinburgh as a kind of cutaway before you get... I guess it's to show passing of time or something, but it, it's Maybe. not really. It's It just seems that they've really just shoehorned in and then to have the climax at edinburgh castle as well due to yeah. the tattoo yeah it, it just seemed a little bit like bashing over the head i promise you this film is set in edinburgh like i know it looks like glasgow but it's it's 100 edinburgh yeah felt a bit forced to me in places that but i guess yeah. maybe only scots people would notice that they should um I mean, Glasgow has, that you mentioned, the Glasgow Film Council. And there's like a Glasgow Film Fund and stuff. And there's been loads, a lot of things filmed in Glasgow, especially most recently. I mean, they just finished filming Batgirl um, a couple of weeks ago. And this seems to have been predominantly shot in Glasgow. So it's been going on for ages. Uh, the Flash movie, they shot some. They shot a scene at the, Necrop- the Necropolis in Glasgow for the... Batman movie, the one that's out just now with Ian Patterson. They did Indiana Jones, the, re- the latest Indiana Jones movie. Ian Patterson, what? the creator of Rhapsody Nesbitt. Oh, <laughs> yeah, he's the new Batman. Um, <laughs> Robert Patterson, beg your pardon. And yeah, they've just filmed. Uh, they, they did. They've done some scenes for the new Indiana Jones movie in Glasgow as well. And I've always thought myself, hmm. what about Edinburgh? And and maybe they do and you just don't hear about it but Edinburgh hosts the, the film festival at the Edinburgh Festival every year it's a very striking city especially in the city centre you know I mean I, I don't go to Edinburgh that often because I don't really have any reason to go but when I do go and I think because because I don't go there very often I always find it really striking when you come off the plate, the train in Waverley and you come up out the station uh, yeah. on Princess Street you know what I mean it's it's there's not, I can't think of anywhere else like it so I don't know why they don't they don't film more stuff there because you've got the old town which could be used for period stuff you've got the the new town you've got loads you've got loads of uh, variety there for movie locations is it maybe because it's too recognizable like the well, maybe. when yeah, you maybe, see yeah. edinburgh you kind of know and i mean a lot of films make it look beautiful as we've discussed um on the swally before you know like sunshine on leith for example or mm-hmm. um um when they're running up arthur's seat you know yeah, it's, yeah. edinburgh is such a beautiful city but it's maybe it's just because they filmed those places but it's instantly recognizable whereas glasgow seems to be the type of place you can transform into yeah 
a, a different place because there's quite a lot of different architecture and, and different buildings mm. there. So mm-hmm. don't know. But yeah, it's quite an interesting point. Yeah. Coming back on to Ken's thought. So way back in 2020, we did the first episode, the pilot episode of Taggart. Yes. And now the first sort of proper non-pilot episode uh, is called Murder in Season, I think it's called. And Ken Stott is in it and he plays a very good part indeed. So maybe we should we should maybe stick that episode though that series of Taggart on the on the slate for a future episode. Mm. Because we've not we've not had an awful lot of Ken Stott in the Swally, I don't think, have we? No, we haven't. I was thinking that actually, because when I was looking at his IMDb, I was thinking, oh, there's quite a few things would be quite good to do um, in terms of some some Ken Stott because he is just so good. Um, and I do want to to kind of watch more of him. So yeah, we'll have to add that into the list actually for things to do uh, in the near future. I think, and, and the only other really part we haven't discussed is, of course, the wonderful Annette Crosby. Yeah, I like his mother. No, I, I was looking at Annette Crosby, and I was thinking she can't be. She's surely not old enough to be Ken Stott's mom, but she is. Mm. <laughs> I don't know what that says about him. <laughs> he obviously had a. Had that fucking tough paper round. But yeah, she is. She's really good, Annette Crosby, in this. Like, really good. Yeah. She, she doesn't, she's only in a, a, a couple of fairly short scenes, but um, they direct. I, think, I wonder if because it's Annette Crosby and she's a wee bit of a national treasure, they, that's why he made a decision not to show her you know, the aftermath of her assault, maybe just to kind of sh- do it from the angle he did it you know that's one scene that i found so powerful that you didn't see anything and obviously you're aware of this is something that she kind of doesn't know how to use the keys for the light so when yeah kelty comes in he's exasperated and he's just pissed off and he's like i don't know how many times and switches it on and you just see the blood behind him and yeah. the cunt on the door yeah and when he opens that door i i found that scene very difficult to watch as well but yeah you just you don't even see him he just walks into the room and he's just crying and sobbing oh mom oh mom or, and that is so powerful to not even see him on screen and that you feel so much for him in terms of just seeing mm-hmm. the, the room and wonderful performance. But as you say, um, it could be that you, that's why they didn't show her getting beaten up because it's Annette Crosby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you kind of believe their relationship as well. Just a couple of little lines she delivers to him and you really almost get a, a mother-son dynamic when, when he's showing her the photo of, of Valerie and she says, oh, it's off a wee and he yeah. gets the glasses. It's just little lines like that just made me like, oh, that's just such a thing that you know, a woman of, of that age would say um, mm-hmm. to her son in terms of that. And then she kind of was like, well, she's better than the usual lot you go for. <laughs> so I, d- I don't know if uh, what Ken's, uh, Kelty's normal type is. <laughs> yeah, what Kelty's no- his normal pretend girlfriends look like. <laughs> <laughs> so... Anthony Nielsen, who wrote and directed the film, uh, this is his only sort of feature film, if you like. Predominantly, his work has been in the theatre. Not very old when he did the Debt Collector. He only not quite um, not quite thirty, in fact, when he did the Debt Collector. But what his IMDb says about him is that he has been cited as a key figure of in-your-face theatre, a term used to characterise new plays with a confrontational style and sensibility that emerged in British theatre during the 1990s. He has been credited with coining the phrase in-your-face theatre, but has rejected the label, 
and instead describes his work as experimental theatre. Much of his work is characterised by the exploration of sex and violence. But he comes from Edinburgh, and most of his work seems to have been kind of north of the border. But there's not really anything that I I recognise. Like, I think it's all... There's no plays that you might... I mean, he's got got a play called Penetrator. God God only knows uh, what happens there. He wrote an episode of Spooks. He did a play called Normal, the Dusseldorf Ripper. But yeah, he's never done any movies, uh, any feature films since The Debt Collector and I had a little look online to see I thought there might be like a sort of documentary about the making of the film, I couldn't find well, if there if, if there is, it's not on it's not on uh, YouTube. But I was sort of interested to see if maybe something had put him off doing more films you know, stressful experience There's not a lot out there about this film at mm. all, I mean no. the film in itself is extremely difficult to find to yeah. be able to watch um, as you say there's not really any making of for anything really any interviews out there about it even looking online there's, there's not much there it's a very difficult film to, to find quite a lot out about it's not even in the BFI which is really surprising you know because I mean there is some utter shite in the BFI <laughs> Which um, somebody, you know, which is obviously being considered worth archiving. But I thought that I thought that's where I might find it because I subscribe to the BFI channel on um, Apple iTunes music movies. So there's some there's some great stuff um, on there. But yeah, I couldn't find it anywhere. And the reason I was surprised is that I seem I seem to remember it being like fairly big news. Because what we hmm. said, what we said at the beginning, uh, Connolly was on a was on a real tear after his performance in Mrs. Brown. Um, you know, he's, he was leading the film, an accomplished cast um, of actors in there. So I remember getting a lot of press when it came out, but the fact that it's just sort of disappeared and it's not on, it's not on Amazon. I looked on Amazon Prime to see if you could rent it or stream it on there. It's not there. It's not on iTunes. It's definitely not on like Netflix or anything like that. So yeah, it's just sort of just sort of drifted away. Do you think though that it, its legacy could live on in terms of uh, a possible new TV series, not relating to the Debt Collector? But do you think that Irvin Welsh took a bit of inspiration from this for the Blade Artist, the book, in terms of yeah. Begbie being a kind of reformed character and, and being this—it's more sculpture. Yeah. Or, whereas in the film, Nicky's it's very much well, yeah, it's kind of sculpture as well that he does, but it's a bit clay. He, I mean, at one point when he's in when he's in his shed crafting the sculpture I kept thinking that uh, Hello by Lionel Richie was going to play <laughs> as he's <laughs> <laughs> kind of reminded me of that a little bit but um, Begbie's a bit more of a kind of abstract sculpture I think in yeah. the artist um, but yeah. yeah I wonder if Irvin N- Welsh took a bit of inspiration I think Nicky seems more of a sort of Damien Hurst type you know, he's, he's got he's got the fish and from from Aldehyde and stuff. I mean, I think I think Irvin Welsh is maybe is taking a bit of a cue from Jimmy Boyle's story for the Blade Artist, which obviously, so in a way, he has taken from here as well because the story of the Blade Artist is a lot is a, a lot of the themes are a reformed Begbie trying to resist getting dragged back into his old life in Edinburgh. And that's essentially what's going on here. You know, Nicky's being, he's kind of being pulled in one direction by two characters, like 
Kelty and Flipper. They they both in it both in their own way putting him in the same direction with Kelty kind of antagonising him and goading him and Flipper needing him to be who he wants him to be. You know this who he was before yeah. this sort of notorious hard man. And then of course you got Nicky himself trying to resist that and his wife. You know, she's you know, they've not spoken much about Valerie, uh, played by Francesca Annis, but she clearly comes from a very different place to Nikki. Like, she's obviously very middle class, kind of upper middle class. Uh, accomplished writer, and she doesn't know she she's she's got she's got no point of reference to where Nikki has come from before he's made before he's arrived at her, you know, in, in his life. As you say, we haven't really spoken much about her, but she is brilliant in this oh, as yeah. well. She's brilliant, she's really a full full range in terms of you. You can tell she's well, she's obviously married him, but then it's not until Kelty comes back on the scene and mentions to her about the policy that she starts digging in about what's mm-hmm. the policy. Well, yeah. Surely you must have read his fucking book because Flipper knows what the policy is. Well, she wrote so, his book. So <laughs> Well, yeah. So why Yeah, of yeah. course. Why why uh, yeah, that's a bit of a yeah, a strange just, plot point that um Did you see you see um Jimmy Logan as her dad from the I did from yes. the holiday that we did. I oh, thought no. that was a yeah. a good um nice little uh, appearance from him, yeah. It was yeah. the one of the as you mentioned earlier, there's a there's a few that just pop up. You're like, oh, of course. Uh, so Jimmy Logan, and then of course the other main one is Matt Costello. Yeah, as the kind of sniggering PC. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, uh, Ronnie Ronnie Arcona plays uh, Valerie's sister yes. as well. Um, and um, blink and you'll miss it. Don Steele as the the barmaid in yeah. the strip club. Yeah, and <laughs> I I did blink and miss her. Um, I was quite surprised. I was trying to think. I was trying to think which bar was she working in then um, when I saw her name come up in the IMDb in the IMDb cast listing for the film. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, it's I suppose I, the, the making a film like this in in Scotland and with the types of characters that are in it. To be fair, it could have become quite a stereotypical sort of affair, really. You know what I mean? And I don't think that he gets it a hundred percent right. You know, um, Nielsen, I don't think, you know, they were saying earlier on, the sort of flow of the movie is a bit strange. It's a bit slow at the start. You're kind of waiting for something to happen for quite a while. And then just some of the sort of plot choices he makes are a bit weird. But I think the fact that he's, you know, he's a first time director of of like of a movie film, of a feature film rather, and he's a writer and he's mad and... You know, he's put together a really accomplished cast to tell a story that could quite easily have just been a by-the-numbers sort of stereotypical uh, Scottish crime drama. Is um, you know, I think he's, he's, he's maybe done it. He's done a good job, but I don't know if there's a reason why he's never made any other <laughs> any other feature films. Mm. I don't know. I'm not sure because it, it seems Come to on. be it seems to be quite well reviewed as well, right? In the film. Yeah, it it certainly has. It did get, it, in my opinion, quite a lot of good plaudits and mm-hmm. people praising Connolly's performance. Uh, for, as I say, for me, it's Ken Stott's performance yeah. that wins it for me. I say it's only the second time I've really watched it. I didn't think it was incredible. I thought it, it was very good and it's it's accomplished and it would be good as a, a kind of two-part drama or something you'd maybe have seen on the BBC. But I... Yeah, I didn't know if I'd rush to, to watch this again. It was just, I, th- I felt it was a bit slow in some places. I felt, I don't know, just, there's a few bits we've discussed that just don't sit right with me in terms of the, the actual story, but it's very good. But yeah, I, I want to see what you've described. 
mm. as the using that opening scene mm-hmm. and having like an almost Tarantino inspired kind of film with you know a bit of flashbacks from the seventies, maybe interspersed with the yeah. kind of the actual story of this copper out to hell bent on seeing Dryden go back to prison for for something and maybe not having that Ken Stock character going completely over the top and raping his wife. Yeah. Um yeah, I'd like to see something like that. That would be good. Mhm. I mean, I mean the the movie scores 74% on the audience the audience rating for on Rotten Tomatoes. That's quite a good score. Um there aren't there aren't any other reviews for it, so it seems to have been a maybe didn't get a particularly wide release. But yeah, it would be it would be good to see a movie like how you're describing. I think with uh, you know some punchy dialogue and a good soundtrack and you know sort of Glasgow uh, Glasgow or in Edinburgh in the nineteen seventies and stuff. I'd be up for that. I'd be I'd be well up for it. All right, shall we put the debt collector through our awards? Yes, why not? Okay, then let's do it. The first one. Uh, is uh, Bobby the Barman's best pub in the movie? What did, what did you pick? Well, I think there's a, there's only the snooker hall and the strip club, isn't there? Yeah. So I've picked this, the snooker hall rather than the strip club. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Yeah, I liked it. Yeah. I mean, I mean it's, it's quite, you know, like the whole smoky pub thing, you know, that's obviously something that we grew up with. You know, like the first however long sort of 10, 15 years of us going to the pub, you could have a ciggy. And the, you know, like, there was always, especially in like certain pubs, like if you went in the grill, there always seemed to be a sort of fog of cigarette smoke that just sat just uh, sort of just just before the ceiling. And then when Kelty is at the hospital, wait, you know, when his mum's in intensive care and he's at the hospital waiting to waiting for news, just fucking smoking away. <laughs> you know what I mean? I did think that crossed my mind. I was like, I don't think that was allowed. Was it far back as that? I know obviously the pubs, but in hospital, I didn't think you know, oh, 1999 awesome. or so you could smoke, especially because she's obviously in intensive care. <laughs> yeah. And he's just having a fag in the corridor whilst waiting for her. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. I like the, because obviously they had the old style jukebox still there mm-hmm. when you go in 1999 but they obviously had a a modern jukebox which i noticed it had all saints and aqua (laughs) um i can't remember what the other one was it was like a now album and then there was i can't remember what the the fourth one was but i was like ah nice little touch there yeah jukebox yeah but yeah definitely the the snooker hall over the strip club for me for sure the ewan mcgregor award for gratuitous nudity there's only really one scene, isn't there? Yeah, it's Flipper and his pal having a little midnight swim, and yeah. you do see a little bit there. So, yeah, that's what <laughs> I would have gone for. Yep. The James Cosmo Award for being in everything Scottish. I went with uh, Matt Costello. Ah, okay. Could, yeah. yeah. Did you well, go? Yeah. Uh, I went with Ian Robertson, I think, mm. purely because just he's been in a lot, and it's predominantly Scottish, apart from Grange Hill, but yeah. even in Grange Hill, he was playing a Scot. But, um, yeah, Matt Costello's probably a good because he does just pop up yeah. in just random parts in different films. And well, I think I said to you we when we, we did something with him in it last year, and I I had just seen him in Wonder Woman 84, bizarrely. And he had a few lines in it, like a talking role, role towards the end. I was like, what the fuck is Matt Costello doing in Wonder Woman? But um, but the other, when I was looking at Ian Robertson's IMDb, he was in Watchmen, uh, Zack Schneider's version mm. of Watchmen but fuck knows yeah. where unless he was like an extra or something I can't I can't imagine I can't I don't, I've seen that film quite a few times I don't remember ever seeing him in it so I think we had quite a lot of choice for this next one but the 
Francis Begbie Award for Gratuitous Swearing. What, what did you go for then for this? Right. <laughs> I'm just going to get it on because I don't want to misquote it, but it fucking made me laugh for ages. So it's, it, it happens near the, near the beginning of the film and it's just after Kelty's been suspended and he's talking to Colquhoun and Colquhoun mm. says, you're a grumpy old cunt. I almost get used to having you around. And Kelty goes, you're a grumpy old cunt, sir. That bunch of toffee tits make a hero of a piece of shite like Nicky Dryden. Aye, well, maybe a piece of shite, but he's a council's golden boy. In the home office, going a big fat check for the rehab unit off his Fucking back. Fucking rehab. Nicky Dryden hasn't changed. He's just got smart. Write a book. Marry some stuck-up journalist. Suddenly he's a fucking socialite. Oh, I can't shit. What good's this? I mean, you're a grumpy old cunt. I was getting used to having you around. You're a grumpy old cunt. Sir, and then they make who you talk like me, son. Because folk who give their right teeth to get educated in speaking, that's a fucking insult to them. I love that part because then he's going down the stairs and then he <laughs> bumps into like two other people and he goes, Am I fucking invisible or what? <laughs> <laughs> and then storms out. Yeah. Uh, I, I, yeah, I do like that. That was good. I liked, and I think it's just because of the way Ken Stott delivers it. Um, it's when Nicky is doing the, the radio interview and you cut to Kelty in his car and he's just muttering to himself, yeah, fuck, fuck, yeah. fuck, yeah, yeah, fuck. <laughs> uh, people die in these big... Oh, fucking yeah, fucking yeah, fucking yeah, you cunt. Fuck you, you I just really like that, just the, the way he delivers that. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, there's so much to choose from in this. It's just, uh, you almost get lost by how much swearing there is. Yeah, and I think and like, there's like little bits where you know, you wonder if Dryden's perhaps slipping back a little bit into who he was before. Like There's a scene where after Kel- when he finds out Kelty's been at the house and he says to his wife, that cunt came to the house. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I just would never use the C word oh, yeah. for it my wife. She would absolutely kick my, kick my cunt in. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, that cunt came at the house. Archetypal Scottish moment? I mean, we could go with the obvious here in terms of the wedding and strip the willow and stuff. Yeah. But um, I I went for, and I, I love the scene from Kelty when he first comes in to the art exhibition and he says about his mince and tatties repeating on him. Yeah, I had the wedding, so it was a fairly archetypal wedding. and But also the tattoo. But the funny thing with the tattoo is mm. that they obviously weren't really able to show any of the tattoo, really. So you wouldn't really hear hear the music and stuff and when they're all they're all in the little private viewing room mm-hmm. you know I think uh, I, feel, I feel like we'll be aligned on this next one um, but the Sean Connery Award who who won the film for you? Oh, Ken Stott yeah. of course yeah Definitely. without a doubt he steals it really His performance yeah, because it's up. you can see the cover like the movie posters online and Conner, uh, Connolly's He's the only headliner. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. he's he's it's his film, but uh, yeah, Stott runs away with it. I think. Yeah, completely. Yeah. No, without a doubt. Yeah. So, well, I would we would urge you if you haven't seen the Debt Collector to go out and and watch it, <laughs> but you might you might have a problem doing that unless you know how to navigate the the kind of less trodden areas of the internet. I mean, to be honest, it's hardly even available as um, I, I did just in research because I couldn't find it anywhere to view. So you know, just just happened to have a look at torrents, and uh, it's not even available there. So mm. it's. 
it's really difficult to find. I think your best bet is maybe if it appears on Channel 4 or something and it's on Film 4 for a couple of months, but um, or if the BBC decide to show it uh, Mm -hmm. for something. But um, yeah, it's almost impossible to find. Yeah, you you, you probably have to wait until Billy Connolly dies. The BBC does a Billy Connolly night or something and maybe they'll show it then. (laughs) You know, I was just thinking that, but I thought, I'm not going to say it. Oh, (laughs) I was going to say maybe when Billy Connolly passes away, they'll uh, they'll show a season of his films. But yeah, if you just said it for me, so thanks very much. <laughs> Comes to all of us in the end, you know. That's <laughs> ah, good. Oh well, yeah. No, I re- enjoyed revisiting it, but uh, as I say, it's uh, it, it was definitely worth it for Ken Stott's performance for me. Yeah, it's definitely. It's an interesting movie. It's interesting to see Billy Connolly leading a film as opposed to being like a sort of co-star or whatever. And like it's got a it's got a brilliant cast. Uh, like a yeah. brilliant cast so if you're able to watch it then and you haven't seen it before then give it a, give it a spin so it was my choice to the debt collector this week so that makes it your choice for the next episode what will we be reviewing well i'd like to go back to the highlands greg for our next review and uh, i'd like to look at a film starring kate dickey james cosmo and eddie izzard <laughs> about a group of students who are doing their Duke of Edinburgh award. I'd like to look at 2019's Get Duked. Oh, really? I've never even heard of it. <laughs> it is described as a hip-hop horror comedy okay. set in the Scottish Highlands. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my life. Oh, well. It's uh, it's available on Amazon. Um, I'll send you this trailer just uh, when we're wrapping up because I want to kind of see your reaction to watching the trailer of this. <laughs> okay. Cool. Um, and you'll be delighted to hear it's only 85 minutes long. Oh, so. excellent. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can't wait to watch this. I've been uh, really looking forward to it. Uh, well, wonderful. Thank you, everyone, very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, if you'd like to follow us on Instagram, you can. You can follow us at Culture Swally Pod, or you can follow us on Twitter at Swally Pod. And if you've seen anything in the news you'd like us to review, or if you've... Uh, seen any piece of scottish culture you'd like us to review you can get in touch with us at cultureswally at gmail.com uh and yeah please feel free to give us a, a rating review subscribe on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends about us okay something else that you you listeners could do for us so we're going to be in aberdeen at the end of may we've not been in aberdeen for a while it's looking like we're going to have a fair bit of time to kill so if you want to get in touch with us why don't you let us know if you live in Aberdeen what your top five things to do legal things to do are in Aberdeen and uh, and maybe we'll let you know how we got on if we think any of them are, are worth doing <laughs> we're gonna have a little Aberdeen scavenger hunt with our listeners in yeah. terms of what they recommend yeah yeah wonderful so, all right all fantastic right. well thanks very much thank you very until much until next time Greg until next time we collected debts Sometimes we resorted to violence. Where it all fell down was when we were dealing with some mad fucker with a death wish. There was plenty of them, let me tell you. Instead of punishing them, we would punish the folk closest to them. Friends, relatives, whatever. It was very effective. But you know all this. 
I didn't know it was a policy. 